Okay. Well, let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 30 again. Pick up where we left off last week. Uh, last week we were uh, looking at uh, we were looking at the uh, well actually we looked a little bit at, at the story about Rachel and the birth of Joseph and then we went on to look at the negotiations between uh, Laban and Jacob regarding uh, his uh, employment. Uh, and we'll pick up that story some more in verse 37 today and go down through the end of the chapter. But uh, before we do, let's kind of go back and, and uh, refresh our minds a little bit about the things we looked at last week. What do we remember from last week? About time to go home. Fourteen years is a long time when you left home for a few days. <laughs> kind of like when I came to Oklahoma. I came to Oklahoma thinking I was coming for a two-week conference, and I've been here for nearly 40 years. So <laughs> I know how Laban feels, how Jacob feels. Actually, I don't. But, <laughs> but why does he want to go back to Canaan? Okay. He had a dream in, at Bethel before he left. How did that? Uh, how did that encounter at Bethel or that dream at Bethel change his circumstance? Well, before, of course, his father's God, his grandfather's God, and now became his God if he protected him. Okay. Okay. It became very much a, a personal issue with him. How did his uh, his relationship with God became a very personal issue? How did his uh, how did our perspective of his sojourn in Haran change at Bethel? Okay. Okay. It really transformed the nature of his sojourn, didn't it? He was, he was, when he left, he was leaving as one who was fleeing from the wrath of his brother. So he was really leaving as a fugitive. He was leaving to spare his life. But at Bethel, things really change and this whole thing really becomes a pilgrimage. So, uh, so now he wants to go back home, but he, he doesn't go back home now. He doesn't get the, he doesn't, uh, it, you know, it's obviously a result of his negotiations with Laban, but it's it's pretty clear that the Lord hasn't yet opened the door for him to go back home. And, and next week, when we get to next week's lesson, we'll see when that actually does happen, when the Lord does tell him to return home. But he's not to return home, so so his pilgrimage is not over, if we want to call it a pilgrimage. His pilgrimage is not over. What determines when a pilgrimage is over? You arrive where? <laughs> okay, but in a pilgrim in a pilgrimage, where are you going? What are you after? Pardon? Okay, or heavenly city? Okay, a, a pilgrimage has a spiritual objective to it, doesn't it? It has some spiritual purpose to it. Okay, and so so what we understand from the fact that Jacob's pilgrimage isn't over yet is that. God isn't finished with him in Haran yet. That God still has spiritual purposes. Things he wants to do in Jacob's life as a result of his time in Haran. It's not completely clear to us exactly all that God does in Jacob's life personally. We see the outward things that happen in his life. It's not real clear what all, the things, are hap- what all things are happening inside his heart and inside his life in Haran. But it's quite clear that God's not ready for him to go home yet. You know, it's kind of like in our own experiences, in our own 
pilgrimages, if you want to call them that. We have, I think in our lives, we may have more than one pilgrimage that we experience or that we encounter. And, and we know the outward circumstances that we face, that we encounter in these various experiences. We can't always tell what God's doing on the inside, can we? And a lot of times, you know, you're, you may be going through some difficult situation or, or facing some circumstance and somebody will say, well, what's God teaching you in that? Have you ever heard that question asked? You know, well, sometimes that's pretty obvious, but more times than not in my life, I have to go, well, you know, I don't really know yet. And I may not know for five or 10 or 15 or 20. It may be some time before I can look back on this encounter, or this experience and understand really what it was that God was teaching me. So we don't know for sure all that God was doing in Jacob's life while he was in Haran. But it's clear his pilgrimage isn't over. What else did we learn from last week's study? Okay. 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 So they enter into this negotiation. Uh, before we get to that particular, the actual agreement that's reached, uh, what what offer does Laban make to Jacob in order to try and get him to stay? Or before I even ask that question, I keep backtracking here. Why does Laban want Jacob to stay? He's good at what he does. He's been blessed. The farm is doing well. Yeah. yeah. He he's, he's making a killing off of Jacob, isn't he? He's really prospering. Jacob's getting nothing out of the deal. Okay. Oh, well, I mean, he got two wives and 12 kids, but I mean, other than that, he got nothing. But, <laughs> but Jacob's not, materially speaking, Jacob's not getting anything out of the deal. Laban's getting all the benefit, and so Laban wants to continue this relationship. So, so they, so what does Laban offer Jacob? What, what is, what offer does he make to Jacob to keep Jacob there? On verse 28, he says, "Name me your wages, and I will give it to you." So it's like, wages are not give it to me. And Jacob even points out, he says, "You shall not give me anything." But if Okay. Okay. So he pretty much gives him carte blanche, doesn't he? He says, just you know, whatever you want, you know, just whatever you want. I, you know, uh, uh, apparently he didn't know Jacob as well as Jacob knew Laban <laughs> to say something like that to Jacob. But so he, so he, he, he basically asked Jacob to name his price, and so they make this agreement then that Hal just referred to uh, a moment ago that that. Uh, of all the sheep and goats that are born to Laban's flock, of all that are spotted or speckled or striped of the goats, and all that are black of the sheep or off color of the sheep, uh, would be Jacob's, okay? And the point of that is, of course, that there aren't very many of them. It's pretty rare for that to happen, okay? So, Jacob is basically saying, I'll just take the rare ones and you can have the rest, and that'll be the pay that I get. Okay. But when they made the agreement, exactly how was it to be carried out, according to Jacob? Okay. So Jacob was the one who was supposed to go through and separate them, and the the ones that he separated out would become his wages, and then from that point on, any animals that were born with that particular color pattern would be his, and it would be very easy, as Hal pointed out then, to determine whether or not people were being honest, okay? Whether or not Jacob and Laban were being honest, because you just look, and if the, the animals were solid color, either white for the sheep or black or brown for the, uh, for the goats, then we would know that those belonged to Laban, and if they were striped or speckled or spotted, or if the sheep were black, then they would belong to Jacob, and it's very easy to determine. And the agreement was that Jacob would go through the flock that day and call out those animals and separate them and then that would be his beginning flock and any that were born after that would be added to his flock. How do things unfold from that point? Laban calls the sheep. Laban goes through that day and he calls the sheep and the sheep that are called, what happens with them? 
Okay, who gets them? His servants. His sons, yeah, his sons. Uh-huh. So he gives the he 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 retains possession of the flock that is called out. So it was supposed to go to Jacob, but right at the outset, Laban changes the agreement, and he separates them out, and he sets, sets separates them for a three days journey. But they are referred to as his. Okay, and then Jacob is given the responsibility to uh, care for the rest. Of Laban's flock, and so. Well, I think there probably were, but we have to remember now that by now Laban's herd is quite, or flock is quite large because of the blessing that Jacob's had on. So yeah, I assume there were quite a few animals involved. Um, but as far as a percentage of the whole, I think they were, you know, relatively small. I don't know how small. I'm not a, I'm not a animal husbandry expert, so I wouldn't know what the percentage is. But probably about three to one. Is that right? Oh, okay. See, we just need a scientist here. So about 25 percent of the flock. Okay, which is higher than I would have expected. Okay, but uh, to to uh, Laban, that's a pretty good deal, right? Because Jacob's doing all the work. Okay. Um, so, uh, so he separates them, and then Jacob uh, is then responsible. Then, then Jacob is responsible to care for Laban's flock, and any ones that are born of that color uh, pattern then become Jacob's from that point out. Okay, so that's the agreement that they reach, or, or excuse me, that's how the agreement gets carried out. Okay, so Laban basically, right off the bat, changes the wages, so to speak that they had agreed to that very day. Okay. What do we learn from that? Is this a is this a bad thing for Jacob? Does this kind of ruin Jacob's whole situation? Well, if they're three days away, the chances of him getting any special funds decrease substantially. Okay. Okay. Starting from zero. Starting from zero, okay. Is this, uh, how should we view this? Is, is, uh, is Jacob now kind of out on a limb and out of luck? It's life is normal with Laban, but he has a blessing with God. Okay, okay. When we have the blessing of God, it really, in the long run, doesn't matter what other people do, does it? If other people take advantage of us, if other people exploit us, if other people trick us or deceive us in some way, uh, and, and it appears that we've lost out, that's just how it looks from a human perspective. But if we have the blessing of God on our lives, then we can look at those circumstances and, and, uh, and, and acknowledge that Okay, we've been mistreated, we've been exploited, we've been taken advantage of. We can acknowledge that and recognize that, but we also see that in the long run it doesn't matter. Because I have the blessing of God on my life. I have God's hand in my life. God's caring for me. God loves me. God knows about all this stuff. And God is the one uh, who ultimately uh, renders judgment and justice in situations like this. And so we can learn to rest and rely upon the Lord in those circumstances. That's not saying that in some situations we, should, we shouldn't seek a redress of a grievance or of, or of a wrong done. I think there is a, a place for that. Uh, if it's a brother in Christ, that redress or uh, addressing of the wrong should be done within the context of the church and not in court. Uh, but aside from that, I think, I think we are at some liberty and freedom to seek redress where there has been a wrong or there has been a grievance. And we see that throughout Scripture. But the real question that I'm trying to address here in this, in this issue is what is our attitude? What is our heart in the matter? Do we, do we recognize uh, that ultimately what really counts is, is having the blessing of God on our life? And if people do take advantage of us and if they appear to get away with taking advantage of us, in the end run, we're still blessed. And, and we're, we still have God's hand on our life and God's purposes in our life are not frustrated or harmed 
when people take advantage of us, when people wrong us, we still have this tremendous blessing of God and the purposes of God are fulfilled in our life. So it's tremendous encouragement that we can that we can get from that. Anything else from last week before we go on? Okay, well, let's pick it up then in verse 37. And we just have a few verses uh, left in the chapter. Uh, but as you'll see, they are difficult verses. And I'm glad to see that Rick uh, got here this morning uh, because he offered to come up and explain this entire situation to us. He, <laughs> He's been asking me about this lesson for about a month now, and, and so I assumed that he had it all figured out and was ready to explain it to us, but he, I noticed he's sitting in the far corner back there <laughs> today. So, so let's pick it up. Uh, if you've never read this passage before, I'm sure uh, you'll find it interesting, and if you have, you've probably been baffled by it too. But it says, then Jacob, this is now after the flock has been called and, and Jacob is left only with Laban's flock and whatever then is born from Laban's flock that meet the specifications. Uh, we then enter into verse 37. It says, Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees. Uh, notice that's P-L-A-N-E, not P-L-A-I-N. So it's a type of tree it's actually referring to there. And peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even, uh, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, and they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put, uh, he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the side of the flock in the gutters so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in, so the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now, that's a passage just loaded with deep spiritual application, right? You all, you all, I'm sure, have gleaned a great deal of uh, encouragement from that passage. So we'll move on now to chapter 31. <laughs> Actually, this is just one of those passages that we encounter from time to time in Scripture that are just so difficult. <laughs> They're so hard to understand. And... And they're hard to understand, on, or this particular one anyway, is, is hard to understand on several levels, and I'll address that in a minute. But the question is, when we come to really difficult passages like this one, what do we do with them? Go to the next chapter. Go to the next chapter, <laughs> exactly right. And oftentimes, that's just what we do. We read them and we go, well, I don't have a clue what's going on there, and I have no idea how that relates, so... On to the next. Yeah. If I was involved in genetic science, this would be a chapter, this series of verses. Since I know it's true and it's factual, there's something here that I'm Okay. But not being a geneticist, you're, you're ready to go on to chapter 31. Okay. All right. Well, that's a good point. Well, one of the things I think we can... We can just glean from the whole principle that the passage is here and that we've now come to the passage and so we have to study it, okay, is the question is, what do you do with hard passages? What do you do with these passages that are full of obscure things going on or difficult to understand or things that somehow just don't seem to work with the rest of Scripture or whatever? They just seem out of place, you know? And... Uh, or it's really difficult to figure out what what are they doing here and what's going on and what does God think about all this? Okay, well we have a number of those kinds of passages in Scripture, uh, and and the question is what do we do when we come to those passages? And I and I'm reminded, you know, it is our it is our tendency, it's our temptation, of course, just to go well I 
You know, I have no clue here. I'm just going on to the next passage, you know. And actually, there's some place for that. Okay, I, I don't think God intends for us to get so bogged down in the difficult passages that we never get to the ones that are clear and, 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 and easier to understand and apply. But on the other hand, Jesus did say that man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Okay, so... So then we discover, as Paul says in Timothy, that all Scripture is inspired by God. And all Scripture is profitable for reproof and correction, for instruction, for training in righteousness. Right? So when I keep that in mind, I come back to Genesis chapter 30 and I go, okay, maybe I shouldn't hurry through this. Maybe I should take my time here and try to figure it out. Okay. So I think it does behoove us. And that's one of the advantages, incidentally, of expositional study and expositional teaching like we do here in this class is that going systematically through a passage or through a book as we do, we are forced to deal with the difficult passages. If we just did topical studies, uh, you know, and pick the topics that we wanted to study, we might never pick these hard passages. Okay. But when you do expositional study and expositional teaching and you force yourself by the sheer discipline of the process to take one passage after another as they come, you are forced to deal with the difficult passages. Okay? So when we do, when we come to these difficult passages, I think the first thing we have to do is say, God, I don't have a clue what's going on here. I don't understand this. What do we... You know, what am I to make of this? What am I... How am I to understand this? How does this relate? How does this apply in my life? Okay? And, and I think if we will reverently and patiently do that with God, oftentimes we'll be, be surprised at the things we can discover from some of these very difficult passages. Now, there have been a number of passages in my experience in Scripture that I encounter and I do that with and I go, God, I just don't understand this. This doesn't seem to, you know, this seems to contradict something else you said or or this is so obscure, I can't understand it. Or what in the world are these guys doing here? And I just don't understand it. And I come to God and I, and, I, and I tell God that and I ask God to open my eyes to understand. And oftentimes, He does. You know? Or at least partially opens up my understanding. And I go, oh, I, you know, I think God wants us at times to show how seriously we take His Word by being willing to take the time to dig and work to find out what it means. Okay? So sometimes that's what happens. There are other times when I do that and, and I stop and I wrestle and I study and I still don't get an answer. And at that point I just go, well, Lord, I still don't understand. So you've obviously not chosen at this point to reveal it to me at this point. So I'm going to go on, Lord. But I'm trusting you at some point in the future to clarify this for me, to give me understanding of this, because I do believe that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds on us. So I want to understand all of the Bible, not just the easy parts. And it's my faith and my hope that God ultimately, even in those areas which where I've in those passages that I've wrestled with and still not reached an understanding of, that God ultimately will give some understanding and some instruction. Well, this is one of those passages that's very difficult. And as I mentioned, it's very difficult on several levels. First of all, it's difficult on just simply what I would call a historical level. Okay? We don't, it's very hard to understand even what Jacob's doing here, right? Okay? It's talking about the flocks, but as you, as you get into it and you read and you study, it's not clear when he's talking about the sheep and when he's talking about the goats and what exactly is he doing and what is this thing about putting the rods in the water and, you know. So, you know, we're we're fifteen hundred years or so removed from these this thing. And so there's probably some cultural stuff going on here. or There's some things going on that they were familiar with back then, perhaps that 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 we're not familiar with. So so just trying to understand, you know, exactly what's happening here historically. What 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 is Jake? What is Jacob doing? And uh, that sort of thing. So so we have that difficulty uh, then we have the difficulty of how or did Jacob's actions result in certain results? 
or effect certain results. Okay. So that's the next question. Okay. So Jacob did all this stuff, but, but we're living in the 21st century, folks, and we know genetics. We know enough genetics, you know, to realize there's something fishy in this story, right? Okay. Uh, there, there just seems to be something fishy here. Okay. So the question then is, when, when Jacob did this, did it have some effect on the outcome? And if it did have some effect on the outcome, how did it have some effect on the outcome? Because we know that the coloring of an animal is determined by genetics, right? Not by some magical, mystical, you know, old wise fable, whatever is going on here. Okay. So how or did what Jacob did result in the result that he got? Okay, so that's the second problem. And then the third problem is, what difference does it make? How does it and how is it relevant to you and I in the 21st century? You know, I don't think any of us here in this class are farmers. And if we were, I doubt that any of us would be out peeling rods and sticking them in the water. We might. Some of you are kind of strange people, so I don't know. But you know, the question is, how does this relate? So this problem, this passage presents problems for us on at least those three levels that I can see, if not others. And you guys may be thinking even of, of other areas. You know, well, I still creates problems for me over here or in this area. But those are three that I think of, and those are the three that I hope to address this morning. Okay. So the first question is, what's going on? What's happening? Well, as we read the story, we realize that Jacob's been shortchanged. Okay. And, but now he has complete control over Laban's flock. And the portion of Laban's flock that he has control over are all the animals, the goats that are solid color, and the sheep that are all solid white. Okay? And from this point forward, his wages, if you will, will be any animals that are born which are spotted or speckled or striped or sheep that are black. Okay? So that will be his wages. So... Jacob now sets out to try to effect the outcome to increase the number of animals that are born that will be his. Okay, pretty straightforward, right? That's what he's going to do. And he has a plan for doing that. Now, I'm not convinced that this was a common cultural practice of the day. Okay, because... It seems like Jacob's doing something here that Laban doesn't know is going on, right? Okay, he's he is he's he is trying to manipulate the situation so as to uh, so as to take advantage of Laban. Okay, now if Laban is familiar with this process, he's obviously going to take measures to prevent it, right? So so I think that that appears, at least to me, that Jacob has somehow come up with this plan through his own knowledge and understanding of animals or his understanding of something, I don't know what, but he's come up with this and he's doing this apparently behind Laban's back. Okay. Uh, so, so immediately we see one of the things that we would typically... Uh, read in this passage, one of the themes that comes out in this passage is Jacob is still what? Yeah, he's still a supplanter, isn't it? Jacob is still the heel grabber. I think that's one of the themes of the passage that we need to that we need to grapple with is that is that one of the things we see here is that is that even over the last 14 years, all the things that Jacob's been through, the whole thing with his wives and everything, that he still hasn't gotten past this thing of being a heel grabber. So he's trying to, he's trying to manipulate and control the situation to his advantage and to Laban's cost or expense. Okay? Yeah? Well, just on my bad note, in verse 37 it says, Jacob, however, like the only reason he's doing this is in response to... And Laban made an agreement that Laban was the one that shafted him. He's the one that took out the... So he's going to get even with him. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's. I think that's very possibly some of what's going on. Is is he got the rough deal there on what Laban did after the agreement was made, and so to some degree, it's uh, it's uh, Jacob's response to what Laban did. Yeah. I also think Jacob, um, in the scripture, seems to lead us to understand that he's very good at what he does, and he's good with his animals, and he knows a lot more about it. It seems like than Laban. Yes. Yes. And so Laban probably doesn't know this trick. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I think that's true. I, I definitely think that's true. That. Uh, that he's he's using something here, and what what appears that there what appears uh, from from the way the story unfolds is that that there appears to be some knowledge, or at least the belief that what an animal, or particularly a sheep or a goat, looks at, or is looking at, or thinking about when it's mating, has some effect on the young that are born. Okay, so that's clearly what's implied in the text that Jacob apparently at least believes this or understands this to be the case. Whether or not it is the case is another issue altogether. Okay, but so so one of the things, one of the themes that we see in the passage is that Jacob is still the supplanter and he is using his knowledge or at least what he understands about animals or thinks he understands about animals that he is using that. As the supplanter, still trying to supplant those that he considers to uh, have. I agree with Dagan. I think what he's saying. I don't know if he was being deceitful here. And before he was flat out the subject, I think he just seemed to do his job in the best way for him. I mean, he's got a conflict of interest. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if he's being dishonest. Well, you know, he makes a statement in next, next week's passage when he's talking with his wives. He makes a statement where he says, you know that I, uh, I forget exactly how it says it. Uh, you can look down there in verse 31, but it's basically, I've worked, I've worked as hard as I could for Laban. Well, is that true? <laughs> you know, I don't think he was. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Mike. the first 14 years until he got Yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering too if you know something that he talked about the dream he had in the This was something that God gave him out of the dream. And that's a possibility. And some commentators uh, think that 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 he, when, in chapter thirty-one he referred when he's talking to his wife he refers to a dream. Okay. Uh, and and some commentators think that that dream was given at the beginning of this six years, and that's how Jacob came up with this idea. Uh, I, I'm not sure of that. I'm not sure when the dream occurs. As I read chapter 31, and we'll get into this next week, it seems to me that the dream he's referring to is something that God says to him at the end of the six years. But, but it's not real clear, and some commentators do think that it's very possibly that this plan or this idea was given to Jacob uh, by the Lord. Okay, So, whatever the case... Uh, this is what Jacob is doing. And, he, and basically, there are kind of three things that Jacob does as, as you read down through those few verses. There are three things that he does. First is he peels those rods and he puts the rods in front of the animals and he gets these speckled, speckled spotted animals, etc. That sort of thing. Okay. And that's verses uh, 37 through 39. And then in verse 40, he does something different. Uh, notice in verse 40, it says... Uh, uh, where am I here? I'm flipping my page here. Uh, in verse 40, it says, Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. Excuse me? What does it say? All the what? In the flock of Laban? All the striped and black in the flock of Laban. Now, wait a minute. When Laban separated the off-colored animals, he took them three days' journey away, so there wouldn't be any mixing. Okay? Because I was looking earlier, it doesn't say that he took the animals three days' journey away. It says he put them in care of his son, and he went three three days' journey away. Is it possible that the flocks were here and that he just got away from them? Well, I think the point of the passage, the point of the, whether the, the flocks went three, whether the flocks that were cold went three days journey or Laban and his flocks went three days journey. The, the, the point is, is that is that there's a three day separation between the spotted speckled 
and the rest of Laban's flock. That's the point, which, whichever one's moved. You understand? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I was just questioning whether or not Laban took any flocks at all and just left all the flocks to his sons. And he just got away from Jacob because he didn't Oh, no, uh, I don't think so. I, I wouldn't read the passage that way. Yeah, I, no, I wouldn't read the passage that way. Uh, I think clearly what the passage is trying to imply is that the flocks themselves were separated. Okay. So the point in verse 40 and several commentators bring this out is what's interesting is this point in Laban's flock that Jacob now has control over. So this is not the ones that have been separated and given to Laban's sons. But the ones that Jacob now has control over contain some striped animals. Now, how does that happen? Well, you've got a landing season, but if you get some late ones, I mean, there's going to be some more born, possibly. But all those that are born that are off-colored belong to Jacob. But here are some off-colored ones that belong to Laban. Okay, when we get to next week, I keep referring to next week. You all don't have to trust me on all this. <laughs> when we get to next week's lesson, we're going to see that Jacob says that Laban has what? Changed his wages ten times. Now, I don't know from what point Jacob is counting. <laughs> you know, I don't know if he's counting all the way back to uh, you know, 13 years earlier and counting when he changed the wages regarding Rachel. Or, or if he's starting here at this at this point at the beginning where he calls he calls the sheep himself, I don't know at what point Jacob's starting to count, but he's saying it's Laban's changes wages ten times. I think what's happened here is that some here somewhere in the process Laban has pulled some shenanigan again. Okay. Well, that's just a sidelight. That's not really crucial to the point that we're trying to make here. But but. But what Jacob does now is he causes the he causes the animals when they're mating to be looking at these off colored animals that are in Laban's flock. So basically what he's doing in verse 40 is the same thing he was doing in verses 37 through 39, except in 37 through 39, he was doing it with the striped rods. Now he's doing it not only with the striped rods, uh, apparently, but also by utilizing the very colored animals. So he's, it's the same principle. He's doing the same thing. Okay, and then we get to the third thing that Jacob does to enhance his flock, and that is his selective breeding of the stronger animals. So when when the stronger animals would come to mate, he would take measures that he believed would result in the birth of these striped, spotted, and speckled animals. Okay, when the weaker animals came, he wouldn't do that. So the net result of this over the long haul was what? Okay. He ends, he ends up with the stronger herd. He ends up with the better herd or the better flock, I should say. He ends up with the better flock. He ends up with the stronger animals and Laban ends up with the weaker animals. Okay. Now, whatever you think about all that, let me just say, I just don't think Jacob's right. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think he's right. Uh, my, my understanding is uh, when I am working for somebody else, my obligation and my commitment is to their success. And God is responsible for my success. Okay. So, so whatever you think about it, uh, personally, I think, I think Jacob, uh, we see what he's doing. We know what he's doing. We know why he's doing it. But I don't think he's right. Because he is, he is really taking advantage. He's making sure that he gets the stronger and Laban gets the weaker. Okay? Uh, Mike? Oh, I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe coming to this later, but I always get the idea that you need to watch strikes and rods. It's almost like a strike. I'm going to make strikes and rods and the sheep are going to bring forth strike sheep. And I don't know if it's that much of a wise tale or superstition or whatever. It's obvious, I think it doesn't work. And I think later in the next chapter, he says, you know, when he changed it and said, oh, we got striped, and God made them bring forth striped, and he that speckled, and God made them bring forth speckled. So it's obvious it's God that's doing this, and we have to know that. And it's, it's not unusual 
in the scripture for God to do some kind of miracle by some kind of what we would call silly means. I mean, you know, throw the deal out in the water and the axe head flows. Mm-hmm. Jesus made mud balls and put on, you know, he didn't have to do that. That was, he did something. It's kind of like that's the, the, the rod and the mechanism for the miracle, even though they really didn't cause the miracle. Okay, okay, and that's a good point. That is where we're going with this. That's, that's the issue we're wrestling with, okay? But first I wanted just to establish what is Jacob doing? Okay, so now we know what he's doing. But that brings up the next question, which Mike has just brought up, is how or did what Jacob did affect the outcome? Okay, and that's the next question we wrestle with. And uh, it, it is a little confusing here because you'll notice uh, there uh, in verse uh, 43, he says, uh, so the man became exceedingly pros- prosperous. So it appears that the text seems to suggest that the prosperity that he has is in some way related to the actions that he took, to the device that he used. Okay. Well, I struggled with that. I even called Dave's uh, uh, son, Tony, and I called him up yesterday. Actually, I sent him a Facebook message and he called me back to talk about the Hebrew text here because it's a little ambiguous uh, exactly what's, uh, how strongly we should uh, rely upon the word uh, so there in the text. So at any rate, I was talking to Tony about that because Tony knows Hebrew pretty well and I don't know it at all. So uh, so I was at his mercy. But at any rate, uh, the flow of the text does seem to indicate that there is some correlation between the prosperity which Jacob ultimately benefits from and the actions that he took. But we struggle with that on several levels because, one, we live in the 21st century, you know, and all of us in grade school and high school and some of us in college studied genetics and, and studied this whole process. And we know how these things work, right? OK. And so we look at what Jacob's doing here and we go, this could have this could have there's no scientific explanation for this working. OK. There's no scientific explanation at all for this working. And it is clear, as Mike points out, that in the next chapter, there we go again, the next chapter, in the next chapter, next week's lesson, we'll see that God, that Jacob does give God the credit for ultimately what happened. Okay? So if that's the truth, if that's the case, if really this God just blessed Jacob and Jacob was doing all this stuff and it really was totally irrelevant, it really had nothing to do with the outcome. God was just blessing you. Then I would ask you this question quite simply. Why does God even bother putting this very difficult passage in here for us to stumble over? If, if the actions that Jacob took have no relevancy at all to the blessing of God, then why does God put this passage in that's troubled us since the first time we read it when we were little kids in the Ohio Grasshopper, Right? Because every time you've read this, you've gone, oh, what's going on here? And it just causes confusion. But the Holy Spirit obviously thought it was important for us to know all these convoluted things that Jacob went through. That's what we need is more fire in here. <laughs> it's already hot enough. <laughs> Yeah. Great, great point. So why does the Holy Spirit do this? Well, if you think this problem is a passage, hang on. How about when... Oh, go ahead, go on. Before you go back, I just want to digress and there was a comment made about whether or not he took a sheep a distance away. Oh, okay. And it does read like he put the sheep in the care of his sons and he went three days' journey away from Jacob. So I think he was getting himself in a safe place. Okay. So that could imply that the striped and spotted sheep were somewhere in the vicinity. Okay. Just, okay. 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 Good. The sons were with near Jacob because in verse 1 on chapter 31 it says Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying. Yeah, this is it. Okay, and that's six years later, though. That's six years later. Yeah. Uh, okay, well. That may be the case. You may have a valid point. There. Yeah. Which makes the point 
that this passage is very hard to understand historically, just on a historical level, doesn't it? They could have, I mean, we initially separated them, you could have taken them off. Yeah. You know, over the six year period, they're probably they're grazing all the areas. Sure. Getting back closer to each other. Yes. So that's one of my points is that, uh, that, that I wanted to make, and I, I don't think I actually got around to stating it, was even after we've taken time to try and figure out historically what happened, it's still not clear, right? We, we still really don't know for sure. You were going to say something. Wrong. <coughs> well, uh, some commentators suggest that when he first made the agreement, he didn't have the plan in mind. I don't know. The point that I want to make is that after we wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with historically what really happened, we're still left with a lot of question marks, right? Or a lot of different possibilities. So what I want to suggest to you is that the exact precise things that happened isn't what's important in the text. There's something else there that's important for us. We need to understand generally what was happening, generally what Jacob was trying to do. We don't have to know all the details of when it was the sheep and when it was the goats and you know exactly where were the sheep and where were the goats. We don't need to know all those things. But there are some things here we do need to know or the Holy Spirit wouldn't include this passage in Scripture. Okay? But if you think this passage is difficult, let's think about some others. How about when Abraham went down to Egypt and he did everything wrong and as my father used to say, he fell in the creek and he came up with his pockets full of fish. You know, he did everything wrong and he came out of Egypt extremely wealthy. How do you figure that? Uh, and uh, and then, of course, there's the example we talked about in detail was Jacob stealing the birthright. You know, OK, so I mean, he does everything wrong, but he still ends up with the birthright. And then we have this story, of course, this story about the rods, which, you know, does all kinds of numbers on our head. And if that's not enough, we go to Numbers chapter 5. And in Numbers chapter 5, we have God in the law giving a test to determine whether or not a woman has committed immorality. Remember that one? How does he do it? He says, you take a... a Something, a parchment or something. He doesn't say what. But you write the law. You write the curse down. You write the curse down, and then you wash the curse off into bitter water. Bitter water means poison. Okay, poisonous water. You wash so that so the ink or whatever they use to write the curse is then washed into the bitter water, to the poisonous water, and the woman who is suspected of immorality is then made to drink the water. And if she is Sickened, and the description of the effect on her body there in Lumbers chapter 5 is pretty gross. But if she is sickened by the poison, she's guilty. But if she is immune to the poison, she's innocent. Remember that passage? Numbers chapter 5. If you haven't, go read it. That'll twist your brain around. Or how about the story of the witch of Endor? Remember the story of the witch of Endor? Saul is desperate to hear from God and God's not speaking to him and, Sam, and Samuel's dead. So what does he do? He sends for the witch of Endor. And the witch of Endor, you know, goes to call up a spirit and boom, Samuel comes back from the dead and gives this terrible word to King Saul. And I'm going, oh, why? God, it's a witch. We're talking witchcraft here. And she was so shocked. She was shocked when Samuel came back from the dead. She didn't even expect it. And then she was freaked out because she said, now I'm in trouble because now the king knows that I'm practicing witchcraft. Okay. And yet God used that practice of witchcraft to get his message to Saul. And if that's not enough, how about Proverbs chapter 16 where it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Or Acts chapter 1 where the apostles of Jesus draw lots to determine who will be the next, the next apostle to fill the place of Judas. Those are just a handful of passages that we encounter where there are these 
really strange devices that we in the 21st century, with all our hyper-scientific comprehension, we think, understand to be myth or wise tales or witchcraft or whatever, and yet somehow God uses those things to effect His purpose. And so I'm going, what am I supposed to make of all this, God? I mean, when, when we think about these things, just the examples that I cited, we see that in each case, God works through these devices. God has condescended to work through these various devices, just in the examples that I cited, right? Now, sometimes, as in the case in Numbers chapter 5, the act is explicitly commanded. In other cases, the act is permitted, like in the case of Jacob here. Okay. In other cases, the act is explicitly forbidden, the consulting of witches. Right? And yet, in each one of these cases, God condescends to communicate or work through that device or through that circumstance to accomplish his purpose. So as uncomfortable as I may be to stand here and tell you that Jacob did all this hocus-pocus stuff and it really worked, I think that's what the text says. Well, good. I'm glad somebody thinks that. There are a lot of things historically that have been lost that we don't know about. I mean, the prime example is the pyramids. We still don't know how they did those. They had some techniques. They had some ways of doing things that we don't know about. It took us several thousand years to figure out how they got in plain of concrete, mm-hmm. but they had mm-hmm. They put ox blood in it. So they had all of these techniques. So this may be one. It's not clarified here. Right. We don't have a lot of information about it. Jacob treats it like it's not something out of the ordinary. He treats it like it's a technique that may have been used somewhere else. Yeah. So that may be really the issue is we don't have enough information to know exactly what the process was. But this may have been a real process. It may have been, but I would suggest, and I agree with you, it may have been, but I would suggest that even if it wasn't, even if it was complete hocus pocus, I mean, take, for example, the numbers five, the the, the bitter water test. I mean, I only, I only have one explanation for that. God commanded them to use that test and the only explanation for it was God superintended the results. I think that's yeah. the case here yeah. too, but this may be a little bit different because this was something that appeared Jacob came up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, so it's hard to know. And it could be either. It could be something that really works. And if you and I went out and tried it on our goats and sheep, I don't have any, but if I try, maybe I should do it on my dog. I don't have a dog either. Maybe it would work. Okay. So, pardon? No, I don't want your dog. <laughs> so. Unless God told him to do that in 31. Unless possibly God did tell him to do it. See, there's all these uncertainties. Okay. But the, oh, go ahead. I don't think Jacob's in the wrong. Okay. His agreement when he said to Laban on the on the front end, he says, "When may I do something for my own household?" So the agreement was, "Now I'm working for my wages that you haven't paid me yet. I'll watch over your flock." Okay. So it seems like the fact that he's working for himself is. Well, he he is working to build his own house, but he is still working for Laban. I mean, that's the presumption that Laban has is that I'm still going to benefit from this guy's labors. That's why he wants him. <laughs> so, could be here. Could be here. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good possibility. We haven't got to the attitude of the sons yet, but... Boy, you all make it hard to get through this chapter. <laughs> Maybe an underlying question is, when God has done all this, it's Jacob has done nothing. And, and I think we may be seeing a lot more about Jacob 
and about Herod's manipulation and involvement still. In spite of the promise of God, because there was nothing, as, as far as the dream we were told about later, there was nothing we were told about his actions were supposed to be something. Yes. Yes, that is true, and we'll get into that next week when we get to dream. But let's let's move on here, okay? What you were trying to say, yes, it doesn't really matter. Exactly. Yes. Yes, exactly. And the point is, and the reason I went through and I cited all these other examples from the Old Testament and even from Acts. Okay, the point is to make that God has apparently condescended. To work through a human device, even though to us that human device seems, you know, pretty far out. Okay. Uh, And in some cases, even though the human device is explicitly prohibited. And what I discover is God really does want to work in our lives and God really does want to work through our lives. And, you know, as much as Jacob knew about animals, and I'm sure he knows, knows far more, knew far more about animals than I will ever know. Even though that's true, Jacob's knowledge of animals was limited. Does the fact that Jacob's knowledge of animals and genetics was limited, does that limit God? Does the fact that someone, because they have no other way to know God's purpose or God's intent in their life decides they're going to draw lots to decide who will be the next apostle? Does the fact that they don't have that knowledge, that they have that limitation, does that render God incapable of communicating His will or His purposes? It doesn't, does it? And so what we see is though, even though we are limited, and even though at times we use foolish methods to try to do what we think needs to be done. That doesn't limit a gracious God from condescending to work through our folly and our misunderstanding and our confusion and our limitations to accomplish His blessing and His purpose in our lives, right? Is that not something we can learn from this passage? With all of our confusion and all the ifs and the ands and well, maybe this and maybe that, and I'll agree with you all, there aren't many, many things here that are black and white in this passage. But one thing that does get to be black and white by the time we get to the next chapter is that God blessed Jacob. And God is doing it, yeah. And so then, so then, if that's true, then we have another problem. If it's true that some, somehow God condescended and superintended providentially through what Jacob did, and I, and I do think he did it through what Jacob did. I, I think the flow of the text implies, I, I can't say it dogmatically, but I think the flow of the text implies, and the fact that the text is even there implies, that there's some correlation between what Jacob did and the prosperity that he encountered. Okay? If that's true, then the question is, does it matter what I do? Take the witch of Endor. Does that give me liberty? Since God has worked through the, through the situation of the witch at Endor, uh, does that give me liberty to go consult witches because God's grace is just going to override and God's going to condescend and God's going to speak and God's going to move and God's going to bless no matter what I do? Is that the lesson we should take from this? You all shake your heads. No, why not? I mean, there are a lot of libertarians, <laughs> theological libertarians that would say, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter. God's grace is, you know. Well, I'll take the example you just gave, which is a whole lot of things you know that are wrong. 
number one, Saul was not in good spiritual shape. And so he looked for an outlet that was not even legal in this country. God had already commanded him, don't do this, and put these people away from him. So his action was wrong. And even Samuel's reaction to him was not good. So the whole thing was just a bad experience. And the outcome was bad. Now, why God allowed that, I don't know. Yeah. But he obviously did. But he's not indicating to us that this is an option we should take. Yeah, okay, okay. And I'll agree with that. That seems pretty clear cut. I but think I would argue whether that was really Samuel or not. It says it was Samuel. Yeah, it says pretty clearly. I believe it says Yeah, it says it was Samuel. Yeah, so if I accept... Now, I do think if you go to a, one of these soothsayers or fortune tellers and they tell you they're speaking to your uncle, they may actually be in contact with some spirit. Yeah, so, so make sure you ask. Make sure you ask for their social security number here. That's right. Yeah. So somebody mentioned Moses. Let's go to Psalm 99. Let me show you a passage. Oh yes, here. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, Psalm 99, verse 6 says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were forgiving God to them. And then there's that troublesome last sentence. And yet an avenger of their evil deeds. You ever notice that psalm before? I think about that psalm a lot. Here we have three examples. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. And we don't have time to go into each one of their stories. But in each case... These are great men of God. They go down in history as great men of God. Moses as the deliverer from Israel, uh, from Egypt. Uh, Aaron as the as the father of the Aaronic priesthood, and Samuel, of course, as this great prophet of God and anointer of the king, of King David. Okay, so we have these three great men, and yet in each one of their lives, there's a story of a great sin. And it's interesting in the case of Moses, what was the great sin that God took vengeance on? He struck, he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. When he struck the rock, what happened? Water came out. It was a device that Moses employed in sin and for which he was disciplined. And yet God condescended to work through it. So, so lest we think that this story of Jacob just gives us carte blanche to act however we want, we need to recognize that even if God condescends to work through our less than spiritual devices, even if God does condescend to do that, that doesn't imply his approval. Nor does it mean that we get off scot-free. And of course, we will see in Jacob's case that all of his supplanting and all of his heel grabbing costs him dearly. And just, just as Gary was mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, you know, it, this, pop, this very possibly aggravated his whole relationship with Laban. It may have intensified the problem and Laban's in, inclination to change his wages. That, that, you know, I mean, thought about that. But clearly, later in the life of Jacob, we see he encounters two very grievous consequences of having lived the life of the supplanter. And the first is in the case of the violence of his sons. And then the second, of course, are those many, many years that he lived thinking Joseph was dead. And so Jacob encounters in his experience, even though God condescends to work through his supplanting devices 
and accomplishes his purposes in Jacob's life, God still doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. It's a serious thing to him. Now, I'm not saying here, uh, I don't want to imply here that I know that what Jacob did here was wrong in, in the passage we're looking at here. I, you know, as far as the, the rods and all that sort of thing. I, I don't know if it was wrong or not. All, I, all I'm wanting to suggest is that from this passage, we take this principle. That God often condescends to work through our feeble devices. And I'm glad he does. Because almost everything I do is feeble. In fact, God says, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain that build it. So everything I do is vanity and futility unless God condescends to work through it. So that's the first lesson I take from this, is that God graciously condescends to work through my feeble devices. And the second lesson is the warning that I have just suggested is that if my feeble devices are sin, I should not presume that God's blessing or working through them is his approval. And I should not assume that he has turned a blind eye to my indifference to his commandments. Okay? So see, we did learn something from this passage in spite of all the things we don't understand about it. Okay? Great. Okay, next week we'll go on and I promise you chapter 31 is a little easier to understand. So.